Hello, good evening and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, a virtual exhibition on Ernest Shackleton you can join online this weekend and some very young Irish writers tell their stories of Ireland's great lighthouses. Starting tomorrow morning, the Ernest Shackleton Autumn School takes place as a virtual event. Speakers from all over the world will deliver seminars on the Great Irish Antarctic Explorer hosted by the Shackleton Museum in Athai, County Kildare. Kevin Kenny of the Athai Heritage Centre told me what you can expect if you log in tomorrow morning. Okay, so this is our 21st year, uh, Fergal. Um, it's, it, it, it is the Shackleton Autumn School. In the last, um, last year and this year, we have switched to a virtual mode uh, obviously because of prevailing COVID conditions. Um, and it's, uh, it's a school, it's an immersion in things polar, things Shackleton, exploration, and what we actually would round it up to say, it's the human spirit, um, and that sort of need to explore the world, you know. Um, so like last year, we covered a range of things for the, from the Antarctic Treaty um, to, you know, various other explorations and um, and Shackleton himself would be the focus. Shackleton being born in Kildare, of course, and spending his childhood there, and always been very proud to be to be Irish. Um, so th- that's really if you're if you're into that sort of thing at all, if you want um, something that's a, a bit different and that allows your mind to expand a bit and hear about various ideas and thoughts and things that have happened and will happen, um, it's it's a good place to click on to tomorrow. You're starting tomorrow morning at ten o'clock. How do we register? Okay, so if you go to shackletonmuseum.com, there's a button there. There's our, our logo for Virtually Shackleton uh, 2021. Click on that. Um, you're asked to enter your email address, and you'll get the updates then. You'll get a link um, tomorrow morning, and that's the link that you click on to, to watch the different proceedings. Who do you have speaking tomorrow? So we have a wide range. We're focusing a bit on Shackleton this year himself. Uh, we normally have a, a broad range, but this year we're focusing on him um, because this is the start of our Shackleton centenary year. Uh, Ernest Shackleton died in South Georgia in January 1922. So we just we're, we're, the range of topics we have. Uh, John Quiller Rowett's grandson. So John Quiller Rowett sponsored Ernest Shackleton's final expedition, the Shackleton Rowett expedition, and John, um, John Kuczeki. Uh, his grandson talks quite a bit about the exhibition. The expedition. He has a lot of artifacts and so on that that were previously unknown, and a lot of records. Um, and he he um, he also talks about his grandfather John Quillerowit. And then at, at the other end, I suppose we have um, Isabel Williams and John Dudney, previous contributors to the Shackleton Autumn School. They're going to talk about Clements Markham, who was a moving force in polar exploration. Uh, in its early years, uh, sponsoring Scott particularly and Shackleton. But then in, into Ernest Shackleton, Joe Wolfe, uh, who is the um, writer-in-residence in the Royal Scottish Geographical Society, covers the period of Ernest Shackleton in the Royal Scottish Geographical Society, which was a very interesting time in Shackleton's career. He just got married and he had come back from the Discovery Expedition and was lining up for his Nimrod Expedition, where he almost got to the South Pole. Brad Borkin and David Herzl launched their book, Audacious Goals, and, and Brad and David really have a strong connection back with, with the Shackleton Autumn School. And sort of Brad particularly originated his ideas on, on this sort of motivational type book uh, there. Meredith Hooper 
and Jean de Pomereau talk about um, Frank Hurley's endurance photographs and and mm, know, which, which which other thing that Shackleton is probably mostly remembered by most people. Yes, I think so. I mean, those photo- the photographs are just so so vivid and stark, and to think that they were taken and preserved, nobody ever knew would they be seen. And they're the real record. I mean, as, as the sailors asked Shackleton, why are we bringing these glass plates um, around as we drift along the ice? And Shackleton, you know, his, his whole vision, motivation, when we get home, no one's going to believe it. This is our record. But new details have come through those photographs with different ways of processing the detail. So that will be, I think, uh, another talk that people could be interested in. Bob Hedlund talks about the, the islands, the non-existence, the uncharted islands, the islands that appeared on charts at various stages um, of the Southern Ocean and, and those islands and what they might have been and how they, how they might have disappeared or how they might never have existed. Um, Alan Noak... Yeah, you call that the, the non-existent islands of the Southern Ocean. Would they just put in the wrong place or were they icebergs or what? Yeah, exactly. Well, icebergs, um, volcanoes that you know, um, um, surfaced uh, and then maybe blew up and disappeared. Um, uh, yeah, as you say, icebergs would be a typical explanation as well. Um, or just things maybe that weren't seen clearly in the distance in, in those early days of, of sailing down there and were marked on a chart. Why it, Shackleton and what, why the interest in him and why the museum to him? Uh, OK, so Shackleton, yeah, um, the interest in him, I think, is he's, he's a non-controversial character. Um, and his, just his commitment to his people and leading his people and treating everybody equally, just his bravery, his, his audaciousness and his, you know, sticking with the task and, and even impossible tasks and emerging out of it. I think there's other aspects of him as well. He was um, <coughs> chairman of the Browning Institute in London, uh, which was a whole early um, um, way of looking at homelessness and looking at um, mixing of the classes um, to try and rise all boats um, and break down barriers. So he was, he was a really wide-ranging pers- ranging person um, as well, you know, and, and just always good at words, good at expressing himself, um, and always with a sort of a vision um, of how things could be better. He's probably unique in that era of, era of exploration and that nobody has written a revisionist history of him yet. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, Ronald Fiennes has a, a recent book out, which I think throws some light on things, some more light on things, because of Ronald's own experience in, in various expeditions and even recreating Shackleton's expeditions. But you're right, I think the, the, he still is, the, it's still the sort of the epic type um, book on him. Jonathan Shackleton and John McKenna, I think, had a good attempt with an Irishman in Antarctica. And, and actually, we're republishing that book um, in the next year as part of our um, our centenary year. But that covers the whole Shackleton, the person, you know, including his parents and his sisters, who were also very influential. And, and, you know, you get a lot of explanation when you look at his Irish Quaker roots as to why he might have been the person that he was. What does that tell us about him? Well, I think uh, the, the whole thing of treating people equally, respecting people for what they did, as opposed to, um, you know, a command and control type way of leading people. Again, his merchant seaman um, uh, experience probably worked to that as well, where, you know, everybody was together in sailing the ship. It was, uh, well, there was obviously officers and men on the ship. Um, It wasn't the same as the the dominant military naval structures that were there at the time. What drove Shackleton? Well, he said himself, though, his his own um, principles 
were um, optimism, patience, um, idealism and courage. And, you know, courage is the last one of them. He had them in that order. What drove him? It's, it's, yes, he wanted to make a name for himself. There's no doubt about that. But there was also, he was asked again, um, um, uh, you know, about what does it take to be explorer in a different context. And he said an explorer has to be a romantic, firstly. So I think there was this idea of what's over the next hill. You know, his leadership, he was very comfortable with a group of people facing the elements. But I think it is some combination of, of that sort of romanticism, idealism, wanting to make a name for himself, certainly. But also, he found himself comfortable in these situations. And you can join the Shackleton Autumn School on shackletonmuseum.com. It starts at 10 o'clock in the morning and runs all day long. And the world's greatest living explorer, Sir Ronald Fiennes, or Ran as he likes to be called, has just written a new biography of Shackleton. Shackleton's centenary is next January. And when he was researching the book, Fiennes visited the Shackleton Museum in Thai and he told Lorna Siggins why he had undertaken this project and how he engages in mind over matter while on his adventures. Nobody has done a... Um assassination attempt on, on the reputation of Shackleton but which is good but one person has made a lot of money through doing a character assassination of Scott I'm talking lies you know known lies in his book and um, I wrote a very big book about Scott having looked in this having read this character assassination in 1979 which totally ruined the reputation of Scott Shackleton has luckily, his legend has not been attacked in that manner, so that's a good thing. Accuracy is what's recommended, and you get accuracy through experiencing, not just reading, about these people from the 20th century. And of course Shackleton had been with Scott. Uh, yeah, Shackleton got introduced to Antarctica um, as one of Scott's uh, group, because although Scott could have chosen from 20 people, he recognised that Shackleton, his third officer on the ship, was um, an amazing character. And so Scott sensibly chose Shackleton and as a doctor, um, a bloke called Wilson, to do the very first attempt to make it towards the pole. And that, and that in itself was an amazing expedition by Scott, Shackleton and Wilson. And you're here talking about mind over matter. I mean, how do you keep yourself going in extremis when you're really suffering? Chapleton had a doctor called Marshall, and um, I've pretty much since my old colleague Charlie Burton sadly died, um, I've always been with Dr. Michael Stroud. So when things go wrong, you know, you've got a doctor. Do you think about anything in particular? Well, different people have different methods of trying to stop the nasty, weak voice coming into your head saying, I've got to stop, I can't take it anymore. I personally use thinking that the people I respect most are watching. I'm talking about my dad and your my gran granddad. I mean, I never met them because he was killed in the war before I got born. But um, yeah, I reckon that dad and granddad are watching and I don't want to be the first one to give up. I am wanting to give up, yeah, because everything's, sort of, you know, not good. What you find your mind um, doing is looking at the other people with you, hoping that one of them will give up. Obviously, sometimes that doesn't happen. You've got to keep going, so... 
Yeah, the, then, and I'm not the only person to have said this, is hatred between you and the other people. You try not to bring it out verbally, but um, you hate whoever you're with. And I've, on a solo expedition, found that without anybody to hate, it's, it's very soul-destroying. Right. And the other side is if, if you're competing against somebody, and um, I think it's true to say that we've never been competing against anyone who isn't Norwegian. I don't know why this is, but we sort of recognize that they are the main experts. Right, yeah. yeah. And so you have several projects that may come off, depending on sponsorship, and one of them could be um, an underwater expedition. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, um, Subu Sisu, um, <coughs> who I was um, attempting Everest with, he, two or three years ago, came up to raise money for the Nelson Mandela Children's Foundation in Cape Town, and he asked me to go with him on an underwater expedition um, at a time when I was finding that high mountains, even using Diamox, um, were not going well. So I thought might as well go underwater in that case. Um, and when he came up with the idea of walking from Robben Island prison to the mainland, so that's what he wants to do, walk from Robben Island. So obviously you would need an oxygen pipe going up to a boat. This lady who's in charge of the expedition, who's an oceanographic scientist from Cape Town University, and her interest is in the oceanographic behavior of the currents in this very, rather like Alcatraz to the mainland. There's sharks, but they've got a machine which you press apparently and they, the sharks don't like it. And they've got, I think, I think it's called a rebreather. Mm -hmm. And um, I said, yeah, I would like to be the fourth member of that team. When they find a sponsor, then we'll know the date and get it going. And does it appeal to you, the idea of underwater? Because I suppose so much of the world now has been mapped, but we don't know much about the oceans. No, they don't. And this, this would be very helpful, although Cebu's um, obviously doing it to raise money for the children's hospital, but scientifically they would be very interested in it. And, he, and Dr. Stride is in himself, um, having been director of the Army Personnel Research Establishment, and he is the UK's expert on the effects of starvation on the human body. So in his, in his element when he's starving, uh, like on a big Antarctic expedition. And you've raised a lot of money for charity. Yeah, Mike and I raised £18.9 million for charities. And whatever about surviving all those explorations, tea and coffee is obviously an essential for Ronald Fiennes when he's doing interviews. He was speaking there to Lorna Siggins. Now, I was recently sent a beautiful children's book called Lighthouse Storybook, a wonderful collection of tales of lighthouses by young storytellers aged between 7 and 12. It's a charity publication in aid of children in Hospital Ireland and Northern Ireland Hospice. And earlier today, one of the very young writers, Holly Lawler, came into studio to read her story about Loophead Lighthouse. But first, Maura Lavelle of Children in Hospital Ireland told me about the book and what inspired it. 
So um, you might have heard of Crinion and Oak. And in 2020, they launched um, a writing project in conjunction, in collaboration with Fighting Words, the creative writing centre that was set up by Roddy Doyle. Um, so they sent out, you know, it was kind of like a competition for children to write stories and they, they got a huge amount of stories in. So the Commissioner of Irish Lights um, decided, wouldn't it be wonderful? It was all around story keeping and lighthouses was the theme. So the Commissioner of Irish Lights got involved and thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to publish a book, take a selection of the stories, publish a book and choose a children's charity for which to raise funds for with you know, by selling the book. And they chose Children in Hospital Ireland um, uh, for the South Southern Ireland and then to make it all I- an All-Ireland initiative, also the Northern Irish um, Hospice. Tell me something about Children in Hospital. Yeah, so Children in Hospital is uh, 50 years old, actually 51 years old. We've, um, we're actually celebrating this year with the publication of a book um, marking the, the half a century. It was set up um, really with an emphasis on allowing, giving parental rights to allow parents to visit their children in hospital because in the late 60s, early 70s, like parents were actually you know to tell you know leave your child at the door don't come back you're only going to annoy the child we'll tell you when your child is better kind of thing so a woman called Patricia Hemmons founded the organization it was a, a kitchen table charity and yeah 50 years later we're still going strong um, obviously children's hospitals now are beautiful places for kids you know this they're brightly colored there's play facilities there's education facilities but it wasn't like that then and a lot of our work is based around our volunteers being in the hospitals and paediatric units around Ireland to play with children and also to give parents a little bit of respite you know to let them take a shower have a coffee the book it's an A4 a small publication but mm-hmm. it's beautifully illustrated what other stories are there yeah, so we have, there's a selection of stories, again, all inspired by lighthouses. So around Dublin, I mean, you'll see stories from Limerick, from County Antrim. I mean, it really is for anybody who's inspired by the coast or by lighthouses, of which there's so much history and kind of mythology around them. Um, I think it would be a beautiful gift for any child or indeed any person that's interested. Um, and if I can just say it's available through our website to purchase for 10 euro. Um, so it's childreninhospital.ie. Two weeks ago on the programme, we visited Loophead Lighthouse in County Clare and heard from a former lighthouse keeper, Stephen Rowan, about his time in the service and plans for the future of the Loop. 12-year-old Dubliner Holly Lawler has written a story about Loophead Lighthouse for Lighthouse Storybook. Holly has visited the Loop a number of times and, fitting for this time of the year, her story has something of a supernatural theme. The night the light went out. Just like most nights over the last 30 years, Frank, the Loophead Lighthouse keeper, was winding down for the night. The whistle from the kettle told Frank the water was ready for his hot water bottle. It was a cold and frosty night, so Frank threw a few extra pieces of turf in the stove to keep him warm while he slept. All Frank's jobs were done for that day and night, and he was looking forward to the next few chapters in his book, Gulliver's Travels. A few hours had passed, and the light on the candle beside his bed was starting to dim. Frank knew he would be up early to clean the lenses and the windows, so he blew out the candle. Frank was in a light sleep when he was awoken by an eerie sound. Frank was sure it wasn't the kettle making this whistling noise. It sounded more like a wailing sound. He sat up in the bed and listened closely. He was sure it was coming from the little square window at the end of his bed. Frank didn't know whether to open the brown curtains or not. The wailing got louder and louder in all his years as a lighthouse keeper he had never heard a sound like this before. There was no bird or animal that made this noise. 
That could only mean one thing to Frank. It was the wail of the banshee. He slowly pulled back one of the brown curtains. Suddenly, right in front of him, a crow flapping its wings. It flew back off the window while Frank bolted back under his covers. Frank peeped out from under his covers towards the half-opened window and all he could see was darkness outside. Frank knew there was something wrong with the main lighthouse lamp. He jumped out of bed knowing ships could be in danger. As quick as he could, Frank ran up the long spiral stairs. When Frank got to the top, he noticed the wick was all wet. Frank knew he had to put back on the oil burner and quickly. In the distance, he could hear the horn of a boat in trouble. If Frank didn't act fast, this boat would soon end up smashed into the rocks. It needed the light to guide it back to shore. Just then, by the corner of his eye, a bright light appeared. To his horror, Frank saw that it was the banshee. She was a ghostly woman with no legs floating in the air, still making that eerie noise. Frank knew this meant death was coming, but not to let this happen on his lighthouse watch. He ignored the banshee and got to lighting the wick of the lamp. Suddenly, the light beamed brightly out to sea. The boat had been saved. Frank could see the banshee slowly fading into the darkness. Her wail was getting lighter and lighter as she vanished into the night sky. Once again, Frank, and especially his lighthouse loop head, had kept all boats safe from danger and most importantly the banshee. Twelve-year-old Holly Lawler reading her story, The Night the Light Went Out. And you can get that book, Lighthouse Storybook, on childrenandhospital.ie. From time to time on Seascapes, we've been able to dip into the archives of some of RT's earliest recordings, thanks to a digitalisation project which is ongoing here at the moment. In the early 1960s, a weekly programme called A Monster Journal brought a digest of life from the south of the country, much of it with a nautical theme. Earlier this year, I played a very brief clip of an interview with Christopher Ahern, who was retiring as a pilot after a lifetime at sea. Most of his time was spent on sailing ships and in this clip Mr Ahern tells how he first went to sea in 1909 and of his life thereafter. She was an old sailing ship, an old bark, an old bark, Blanchard, Sadville London, a giant in Garston above Liverpool, bound for Fremantle, Western Australia, with a cargo of Piet Mignor. And how long did the voyage last? The voyage lasted about 140 days. 140 days, yes. And we saw very bad weather going out to Fremantle. Very bad weather. Did you go around the Cape? Uh, and around Cape? the Cape of Good Hope. And after around the Cape of Good Hope, on our way down to Fremantle, we were into very bad weather. Very bad weather. We lost our lifeboats. And we lost a couple of men overboard. It was a tidal wave struck us. We passed an island called St. Paul's Island at four o'clock in the morning and at four o'clock that afternoon we were hoped to win a hurricane we were hoped to win a hurricane and all hands on deck and heaved the ship too and about a little after a quarter after four there was a tidal wave struck us and it shifted everything off of the deck well, now would you have any idea how high this wave was when it struck the ship? No, I don't. Anyhow, it smothered the ship. It filled the ship right up. We thought she was gone. Thought she was gone. Her lifeboat's gone, and two men overboard, and the sails, everything went. Everything went. But of course, you survived. Oh yeah, yeah. There was two men went 
overboard too, Philip. We never picked them up. They were last. Mr. Hearn, when did you first become a pilot here? Oh, I come up from Australia, 1914, on a sailing ship. I joined a sailing ship in Fremantle, Western Australia. Barcardi Inverness, Belant Aberdeen. Joined in Queenstown. I come bound to Queenstown by the run. Come to Queenstown. Queenstown, them days, you know. And we were 100. I think it was 140 days coming to Queenstown, 150 days to Queenstown. From Fremantle in From Australia? From Fremantle to Queenstown, yes. That was a long, long but time. Before I joined, before I joined Inverness, I sailed on a coast out here in Australia. I sailed in the schooners, uh, sailed in the schooners up and down Spencer's Gulf, Port Adelaide, up to Port Pirey, Wallaroo, Port Augusta, and back to Adelaide again, Port Adelaide. And after a while, I got away from the schooners. Yes. I went, went into steam. Yes, but when did you actually join the pilotage service here in Cork? I joined it in 1914. And, uh, At the outbreak of the war, the First World War. Yes. And I was a pilot on the First World War. And when the war was over, when the First World was over, I went over the United States lines, special pilot. And I was with them up to about four years ago. Yes. Well, that means that you guided all the big yes, liners in yes, here into the harbour. I have from the, I've the best of them, the biggest of them, yes. Well, that must have been a pretty tricky job at times. Yes. And a pretty responsible one, too. Well, yes. I, we, had a, we had good days and we had bad days, that's all. But in the winter, I suppose it was particularly difficult. Yes, yes. In the winter time, you'd get your bag ready and be all prepared for getting a trip to New York. When you say getting a trip for well, New York, I'm... That's getting Shanghai, you know. Can't, can't get off the ship. You, you have to, you bring the ship in, and then you have to take her back to sea again. Well, in your long career as a pilot, how long did the, how many times did, did that happen to you? Well, that happened about a dozen times. About a dozen times, taken on to New York. Well, did you enjoy this? Oh, yeah. Oh, dear, I enjoyed it, all right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ah, yes. Ah, yeah. They give a good time, you know, over there. Yeah. That was pilot Christopher Hearn speaking on his retirement in the early 1960s to John O'Sullivan from the RT Archives. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme with podcast is on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on near the water over the next week, stay safe. Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keen.